The following presentation is from North Pine Baptist Church. We trust that it will help you learn more about God and His message for the world. For more information and to connect with us, visit npbc.org.au. He doesn't major on the gruesome details. Such things are not the elements of the narrative that John wants to draw attention to. But having said that, John does have a very clear purpose in mind. And he makes it clear in verse 35 of this passage we'll be looking at today, as he writes of the soldier thrusting the spear into Jesus' side after finding that Jesus had already died. It says, he who saw it has borne witness. He's referring to himself as an eyewitness. His testimony is true. And he knows that he's telling the truth. Why? That you also may believe. John has a purpose in mind. That you also may believe. In fact, everything that John has included in his gospel serves that very same purpose as we read in John 20. Now, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. Well, it's just been quite selective. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you have, may have life in his name. Get the point. He writes that we, readers, may believe. What? 
Jesus is the Christ. Jesus is the Son of God. And that we might have God. Thus, what appears on the surface to be a simple and faithful recounting of the things John saw on that fateful day is much more profound, much more purposeful than we might think upon a cursory reading. As Chris McCleavy pointed out so clearly last week, every word spoken, every turn of events, no matter how slight, every authorial comment on those events and on those words is carefully and deliberately chosen to prove that Jesus is truly the Christ, the Son of God. And that which happened, and that which was spoken in Jerusalem some 2,000 years ago, provide convincing evidence that Jesus is who he claimed to be, and that he achieved the redemptive purpose for which he became man. And as we come together today on this Good Friday, we're reminded again of that Jesus' death is the most important event in the whole of human history. And as we read this part of John's Gospel, that is John 19, 28 to 42, and as you follow the story with me, because we're about to read it, you'll notice that every action, every word, no matter the intention or motivation or will of the actor or the speaker, proves to be part of an unfolding drama directed by God. So let's read this passage. I'll just ask if you, as you follow on the screen, as you listen to me read, do you look for those things? Look for the way in which God is acting out His plans, directing the action, even when those who do stuff have no clue that this is going on. It all plays into His hands. After this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said, to fulfill the Scripture, I thirst. A jar full of sour wine stood there so that uh, so they put a sponge full of sour wine on a hyssop branch, held it to his mouth. When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, It is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Since it was the day of preparation, and so that the bodies would not remain in the cross on the Sabbath, for the Sabbath was a high day, the Jews asked Pilate that their legs might be broken and that they might be taken away. So the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first and of the other who had been crucified with him. But when they came to Jesus and saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and at once there came out blood and water. He who saw it has borne witness. His testimony is true, and he knows he's telling the truth, that you also may believe. For these things took place, that the scripture might be fulfilled, not one of his bones will be broken. And again, another scripture says, they will look on him whom they have pierced. After these things, Joseph of Arimathea, who was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly for fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus, and Pilate gave him permission. So he came and took away his body. Nicodemus also, who earlier had come to Jesus by night, came bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds in weight. So they took the body of Jesus and bound it in linen cloths with spices, as is the burial custom of the Jews. Now in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden. And in the garden, a new tomb 
in which no one had yet been made. So because of the Jewish day of preparation, since the tomb was close at hand, they laid Jesus there. I'll give uh, my attention and draw your attention to just the first three verses. After this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said to fulfill the scripture, I thirst. A jar full of sour wine stood there, so that a, a sponge full of sour wine on a hyssop branch should tell to his mouth. When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, It is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Well, the moment it arrived, this was the culminating event of Jesus' life. This is the whole reason he had been born. He knew it. For he had been in control the whole time. Nothing caught him by surprise. Everything played into the master plan. Just to call a couple of examples of that, just to illustrate. You might remember at the wedding at Cana in John chapter 2, when Mary, Jesus' mother, advised Jesus there was no wine. Jesus replied, Woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. See, Jesus knew his purpose, and he knew that a time would come when the final act must take place, when the hour would come, and at this, when that hour would come, and at, at this wedding, Cana, that hour had not come. He still had to do and say many things that would demonstrate that he was the Messiah, the sorts of things John has included in his gospel. Consider also John chapter 7. It was the, the Feast of Booze or Feast of Tabernacles, that time of the year in the Jewish calendar where Jews commemorated their time spent living in tents in the wilderness. You might remember the story. Jesus decides initially not to go from Galilee to Judea because the Jews were after him. This is what Jesus uh, says in this. He says, After this, Jesus went about in Galilee. He would not go into Judea because the Jews were seeking to kill him. Now, the Jews' feast of booze was at hand. So his brother said to him, Leave here. David should hear, that the disciples may see the works you are doing. For no one works in secret if he seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. So they were looking for him to actually make this public uh, statement to be seen, to start to fulfill his mission as they understood it, but they misunderstood it. For not even his brothers believed in him. And Jesus said to them, My time has not yet come. But your time is always here. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify about it that its works are evil. You go up to the feast. I'm not going to the feast, for my time has not yet fully come. And after this, he remained in Galilee. But after his brothers had gone up to the feast, then he also went up, not publicly, but privately. And then we, we read the story further. It eventually says he, he came out of hiding, began teaching, and, and those who heard him were in fact divided. Some wondered whether he might be the Messiah, and some wanted to kill him, and they wanted to hand him over to officers to arrest him. And then they tried. The officers didn't arrest him. They came back to report. In verse 44 of that same uh, uh, chapter, in chapter 7, it says, Some of them wanted to arrest him, but no one laid hands on him. Right? No one laid hands on him. The officers then came to the chief priests and Pharisees, he said to them, why did you not bring him? And the officers answered, 
No one ever spoke like this man till Jesus' time had not yet come. It was not yet time for him to die. And then when we get to John 13, that time when Jesus eats with his disciples, that time when Judas leaves to betray him, that time when Jesus displays such deep humility by washing his disciples' feet. John records in verse 1 these words. Now, before the feast of Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. Time had come. In John 17, what we call Jesus' high priestly prayer, Jesus prays as though the event that is about to occur had already occurred. He says, I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And I am no longer in the world. Yet here he is praying. He says, I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world, speaking of his disciples. And I am coming to you. And so he speaks as though the event that is about to occur has already occurred. And this brings us back to John 19, verse 28, where we see a similar notion at play. Where it says in verse 28, After this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, past tense, surely Jesus needed to actually die and actually be raised to life again before it was really all finished. It's true, in a sense. These things needed to occur in time in space, roughly 2,000 years ago in Jerusalem. But as Aslan reminded the heavenly children in the line of which in the wardrobe, there was something deeper at play. Something from before the dawn of time. And there are a number of places in the New Testament where this is declared. And I'll, again, I'll just remind us of a couple. 2 Timothy 1 9 says, Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner, but share in suffering for the gospel, for the power of God, who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus when? Before the ages began. And in the Greek in that is before times eternal. Before times eternal. And which now has been manifested through the appearing of our Saviour, Christ Jesus, who abolished death and brought life and immortality to life through the gospel. Or in 1 Peter chapter 1, he was what? Foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times. That's the times of you know, Jerusalem 2,000 years ago. Made manifest in the times, um, the last times, for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God. Or in Matthew chapter 25, when Jesus speaks of the final judgment, he says, Then the king will say to those on the right, Come, you who, you who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared, prepared for you from the foundation of the world. And in that final example, Revelation chapter 13, speaking of the authority of the beast that comes to persecute and cause chaos. And authority was given it over every tribe and people and language and nation and all who dwell on earth would worship it. And everyone whose name is, has not been written before the foundation of the world in the book of life 
of the Lamb who was slain. His name was not, has not been written before the foundation of the world. So, what was now happening at Calvary was planned by God before the world began. Before the world began. In the eternal plan of God, the events recorded in John chapter 19 were already accomplished. All truly was now finished, since that which is planned by God cannot not happen. It must occur. It follows then that everything recorded in the Old Testament, you know, the covenant with Abraham, the covenant of promise, the, the law given to Moses, the sacrificial system, the covenant with David about eternal kingship, the covenant with Solomon about the significance of the temple and God's presence, the utterances of the prophets concerning judgment and redemption, all find their completion and their fulfillment in Jesus, for all of it is a foreshadowing and anticipation of the person and work of Christ. So, as Chris helpfully pointed out last Sunday, John's Gospel and the Passion narrative in particular we find littered with fulfillment language. And here it is again. After this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said, to fulfill the Scriptures, or the Scripture, I thirst. And a jar of a full of sour wine stood there. That's the drink that the soldiers would normally drink. So they put a sponge full of sour wine in his branch and held it to his mouth. It's a fulfillment of Psalm 69, verse 21. It says, They gave me gall, poison for food, and for my thirst they gave me sour wine to drink. Often intrigued by how this might happen. Hyssop is a bit of a flower. It has little stalky things on it. And the interesting stuff, when you see pictures of Jesus on the cross, when we see, say, Hollywood rendition or that kind of thing, we often see this cross up high. So that's how it was done. Crosses were really low. They were just above the ground. So there might be just a little bit of space between the ground and the beginning of the cross of the person's feet who was being crucified. So it was barely a handbreadth or a width, yeah, well, sort of length, to reach up and put something to a person's mouth and hang on a cross. So those things we see and we perhaps have captured the popular imagination simply aren't true to fact. Crosses were not high and lifted up in that sense. There's a symbolism about that, but they were not high in that sense. So it wasn't actually that difficult to just reach up with a sponge and some hyssop and wipe it across the person's face. You could do it with just a little branch of some sort. It was not as difficult as it's made out, or as we often see. There's kind of a, a, a this attempt to even to create a greater drama by picturing this high thing, the person lifting up high. And even with the spears thrust inside, the person standing on the ground has got wood straight in. Uh, it was not that high, just in just, uh, practical terms. And as well, the symbolism jumps from the page. At least it would for any Jewish reader even vaguely familiar with the story of the Passover, since hyssop was dipped in the blood of a sacrificial lamb used to daub the doorposts and lintels in the homes of the Jewish community in Egypt as a protection against the, uh, the passing of the angel of death over them at the time of the Exodus. And without any awareness on the part of the soldiers, they acted in a way that proved to be symbolic. It symbolically declared that Jesus 
is the Lamb without spot, whose blood is shed to shield all those who believe from the judgment of God, for he actually takes a judgment upon himself. So unwittingly, unwittingly, the soldiers acted in accordance with the plan of God in a way that fulfills the requirements of the Old Testament. They could not know that. That would happen. And then the victory shout. Look at this guy. It is finished. The great transaction had been made. All that the righteous judgment of God required, all that his wrath demanded in response to our sin, in response to our rebellion against the rule of God, he lay died upon the God-man, Jesus, the Christ. His life for ours. He bore our sin that we might bear his righteousness. He bore our guilt that we might be declared innocent. He bore our shame that we might be glorified. David Guzik puts it this way. He says, it was all finished. Paid in full. In fact, the word tetelestai has that as, as one of its uh, cognate meanings in the verb form. It was all finished. Paid in full. You'd often see, apparently, in ancient um, uh, ancient receipts or invoices, the word tetelestai, paid in full. It was all finished. Paid in full. Accomplished. The types, the promises, the prophecies were all finished. The sacrifices, the ceremonies of the priesthood were finished. The perfect obedience that Jesus uh, lived according to on earth had achieved his purpose. It was finished. The satisfaction of God's justice was finished. The power of Satan, sin, and death was finished. It's all finished. As C.H. Spurgeon writes, Tetelestai was a conqueror's cry. It was uttered with a loud voice. There is nothing of anguish about it. There is no wailing in it. It is the cry of one who has completed a tremendous labor. Too often we sit back and we catch the saddened by the events of, of Good Friday. We, we find it sobering and somber. It was an element which is absolutely true. But Jesus' word, this one word in Greek, Tetelestai is a word of triumph. A word of triumph. And with this victory, Jesus bowed his head and he gave up his spirit. Now, we need to be aware too that this bowing is not a bowing in anguish, it's not a bowing in defeat, it's a bowing in peace. It is a sweet repose, to use a more poetic language, it's a restful sleep of the one who has accomplished much, the one who has won a decisive victory and can now relax. It's over. The person who has done these things can rest in peace. And he gave up his spirit. No one took his life from him. He remained in complete control to the end. As Augustine said, he gave up his life because he willed it, when he willed it, and as he willed it. Let me finish with just a, a couple of verses from John chapter 10. 
spoken in the context of Jesus declaring himself to be a good shepherd. For this reason, the Father loves me, because I lay down my life that I may not take it up again. No one takes it from me. I lay it down by my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father. In the words of Richard Trent, no one took his life from him. His death was a voluntary surrender. Surrender which he had authority to make. Why? Because the authority to surrender his life was accompanied by an authority to resume it. And it's that that our friend Ben Jennings will take up next Sunday at 9 o'clock as we come together. But Jesus took his life up again. He had the authority to resume it. Thanks for joining us for this presentation from North Pine Baptist Church. For more information and to connect with us, visit npbc.org.au.